Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, what is a library of things? What can you borrow from one? We head to Saskatoon to find out. Is this country broken? A new poll suggests a lot of Canadians sense that perhaps it is, and a significant number are angry about the way Canada is being managed. How could that play out politically? We find out. The Prime Minister, meantime, meets with premiers to talk healthcare in Ottawa on Tuesday. There's a lot of anticipation for this one. There appears to be a deal on the table to provide more money to the provinces for healthcare. We find out from healthcare professionals what they want to see accomplished. But first, rescue efforts continue in southern Turkey and northern Syria. After a devastating 7.8 magnitude quake hit the area before dawn on Monday, thousands have already been killed. That number could rise significantly. Thousands of buildings would topple. We speak to someone with family in Aleppo, Syria, not far from the quake's episode. Let me start tonight off with a question, but a request. Chorus is supporting efforts by the Humanitarian Coalition in its appeal to help victims of that massive earthquake, more than one, actually, that devastated uh, parts of Turkey and Syria early, early this morning. Uh, it is about six o'clock in the morning there now. The sun has yet to rise. It has been a busy and desperate night as they continue to search for survivors buried in the rubble of thousands of collapsed buildings in that area of a southern Turkey and northwestern Syria. Uh, again, Chorus is supporting the Humanitarian Coalition. That's a group of 12 leading Canadian aid agencies uh, who have agreed to work together in times of major humanitarian crises. Those are groups such as CARE and Oxfam, Save the Children, and others that you know. You can find out more information about them on their website, www.humanitariancoalition.ca www.humanitariancoalition.ca. And there's a homepage up now that features details about the fundraising work they're doing for the evolving crisis in Turkey and Syria tonight. Please have a look there. can hear the kind of panic there. Those were buildings literally collapsing as people were on the streets. Uh, that one was from Gaziantep in Turkey. Um, not too, too far away. I mean, it's right on the border, right? Aleppo, the city you may know well in Syria, is, uh, is not that far, about 120 kilometers from there, from the epicenter of this massive, massive earthquake. Uh, again, it has been a desperate night, of desperate night of searching for survivors in that area across southern Turkey, across northern Syria. After that 7.8 magnitude quake, a depth of just 24 kilometers caused massive devastation across that region. Um, it happened at the worst time, too. People were jolted out of their sleep. It happened around 4 a.m., so pre-dawn local time, a little more than 24 hours ago now. As people rushed outside into the rain and snow, of course, it's winter there to escape falling debris. And they were the fortunate ones. As of the last report, um, the death toll is now at 4,300. Thousands of buildings toppled. And there are concerns, of course, that more people, many, many more, will be found, uh, will not be found alive as those uh, search efforts continue. Uh, again, they were pulling through the night. I mean, there's just, these, you know, the images, right? These are crowded cities full of buildings. A lot of these buildings, um, although there, have been work, there has been work to try to upgrade them seismically, a lot of buildings either collapsed or on the verge 
of collapsing crews, though. There have been always, as always, there are stories of miracle rescues. Crews were able to rescue a child from the rubble of a collapsed building in Azaz, Syria. Here's sound of that rescue. But again, those rescue efforts, <clears throat> excuse me, hampered by dozens of powerful aftershocks, including one nearly as powerful as the initial quake itself. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujeric uh, says the quake is one of the most powerful to hit the region in decades. Our humanitarian partners are telling us that this is Turkey's most powerful earthquake recorded since 1939, and that at least 78 aftershocks were reported, following by followed by second earthquake of 7.5 magnitude. Uh, Turkey's President Erdogan has declared seven days of national mourning. Again, the quake piled more misery on a region that has seen a whole lot of suffering over the past decade. On the Syrian side, the area is divided between government-held territory and the country's last opposition-held enclave, which is surrounded by Russian-backed government forces. Uh, Turkey, of course, is home to millions of refugees from Syria's civil war. Our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, says Canada is ready to provide assistance. Our hearts go out to the families, the communities deeply affected by this terrible, terrible event. Uh, Canada is looking at how we can help directly and immediately, but also how we can work with the international community uh, to be there for people who are suffering right now in the immediate and for the long term. Justin Trudeau there right now. Again, it's just past 6 a.m. in the quake zone. The sun has yet to start to rise. What will daylight bring? Joining me now is CKNW producer Leila Khadir. She's born in Aleppo, Syria, not far from the epicenter. She still has family members who were there when this all happened. Leila, thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. Yeah. How, how did you find out? It was, I guess it was still late on Sunday night here, right? Yeah, I, I came back from from work. I I opened the TV, saw the news, and I ran to call my uh, my aunt, my family there, um, and they just surprised me. Um, the, the situation was so devastating. She she told me buildings are collapsing one by another, like dominoes. Yesterday, also, she told me that her house was damaged, the walls were cracked, and the glass, including windows, were broken. And now it is at the risk of collapsing. Um, yeah, and this is in Aleppo, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, Aleppians evacuated their home, and they are now staying outdoors in a Sahara-like area called Al-Muhallaq, with minimum presence of trees and buildings, um, as it is their safest option right now. Right. They just want to be away from, from the the possibility of more building collapses. I know you posted some yeah. videos on social media. I've seen the other ones. I mean, especially in Aleppo, I guess, buildings were already damaged by, by war, by shelling. And now, I guess, yeah. with uh, with this, they're they're at real risk. Yeah. They, they have been there for almost 24 hours, uh, surviving a temperature of minus four. Um, oh, well. My family told me they did not eat and sleep since last night. Um they don't know if they will be able to return to their home and they don't know if it's ever going to be safe again. Yeah. It's I, I, I've you, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Lila. Yeah. Aleppo is a city that experienced war for 12 years right now mm. and people were already in shelters. They are, um, trying to survive the, the 
economic situation, the bad economic situation. Um, they they have electricity outages, uh, water outages. Um, there, there is nothing they can do right now. I was noticing that you'd spoken to your aunt and she, they're okay, right? I mean, there was damage to their home and they're not sure. But I was reading that it was also, I mean, it's cold there, right? This is not a time uh, to be outside and there isn't a lot of help available for them right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I mentioned, it's minus four right now. It was snowing uh, in the last few days. Um, so it, it's not, I mean, it's, it will never be the best time for an earthquake, but also the the weather made it worse. For people who might not know the geography, um, that part of southern Turkey and, of course, Aleppo, Gaziantep and Aleppo are really quite close together, aren't they? In fact, they're almost sort of similar, not similar cities, but they're both historical cities. Yeah. Uh, Aleppo is one of the most, of the oldest um, cities in the world. Um, and it is really sad to see, you know, historic buildings like the Aleppo Citadel um, collapsing um, or, or being destroyed. What um, What will they do now? I mean, is there... Do they have any hope that there will that there will be help coming in? Because I know there's, of course, there's still a war going on, more or less, right? Yeah. Um, so right now they they they're living in the in the unknown. I understand that this is a natural disaster that we humans can't control it. But um, at this situation, it is really good idea for people and countries to offer some help. Uh, people there need shelters, especially during the weather right now, blood donations, equipment to lift and remove the rubble, um, and also gas to, you know, operate the ambulance vehicles. Um, people in Syria now, you know, have no electricity, no internet, no water, no nothing. Um, and, you know, what made it worse is the American sanctions on the, the, uh, the country. Right, uh, on the White House, yeah, people can't send donations um, because of the sanctions. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was just reading today too. There's been there's been a lot of sadness. I mean, we we can I can hear your sadness and frustration, but a lot of anger too. A bit a lot of anger because it just feels like for a long time people stopped talking about Aleppo and stopped talking about what was happening, and here we are talking about it again. But again, it's tragedy. Yeah, I mean, the the city never survived. Uh, it was under the war for, for 12 years right now. Um, they they had, you know, like a really bad financial situation. Um, they, they had no gas. I, I remember my, my family, like I could not even talk to them uh, even before the earthquake uh, because of there's no internet, there's no electricity. So I can't imagine myself living there. Um, during these situations. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I, I just was, it must have been so relief, such a relief to get that, that text from your aunt, though, because you, you posted that about how she said that we're okay and the windows are broken and we don't know about yeah. home, but we're okay. Yeah. Leila, can yeah, you with us? This, yeah, so, go ahead. I just want them to, to feel safe. Um, and, you know, simple stuff like, they can't sleep right now. They they did not sleep since yesterday. They did not eat. Um, the last time I've texted them was like 
today's afternoon. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah. they told me they, they really want to sleep. They, they want to eat. There's no food. Uh, and they don't know if they're going to return to their, back to their home or not. Leila Hadir is with us this half hour, CKNW producer here in Vancouver, and she's speaking to us tonight about the earthquake that has struck uh, so many parts of southern Turkey and northern Syria, including Aleppo, where she was born and uh, spent many of her spent her early years. She still has family there. Uh, Leila, I guess it's hard. To, you must it must be so tough to watch from afar when these things happen and just hope that everything's going to work out for the best. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still tra- trying to understand what happened i'm also incredibly concerned about my city um 12 years of war have done enough damage to Aleppo, and you know seeing the, the buildings collapse collapsing like this uh, and being destroyed just like triggering and it reminds me of, of the scenes i witnessed during the the civil war um so those scenes are just re-traumatizing me um and make me really concerned about my family, my, my country there. Yeah, we talked about this the first time we spoke about it, well, almost a year ago now, about just how you mm-hmm. thought you might never get a chance to go back home. I can imagine how tough it is anytime there's tragedy to think, wow, I, I don't, maybe I won't. So yeah, our, it's, it's um, yeah, I can't even imagine. Leila, I can't even imagine. Yeah, you know, Ben, I, I was just talking with my sister last time and we were dreaming that if one day we got the Canadian citizenship, we would ha- we would have a chance to go and visit my family there. Um, but then yesterday, my little sister told me, "Are we still gonna go there? What we're gonna do? There's like, w- what kind of memories we have there? It is so painful memories. We have no place right now to stay. Um, uh, I mean, there, there's nothing we can do." Uh, if we want to go back, if we want to just like go and visit. So she suggested the yeah. only solution to see our family is that either they come here or we meet in a different country. Can you imagine? If I want to see my family, I should go to a different country just to meet them. Yeah, that's, I, I guess the only thing we can do now is try and help, try and send send aid, right? I mean, we've, um, for so long, we've kind of not talked a lot about Aleppo, given all that's going on in other parts of the world and so yeah. forth. But I guess now now's the time to help out again. Yeah, I mean, any kind of aid would help. As I mentioned, it's not it's not necessarily to be money. We 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 need architects. We need, um, you know, health staff. We need uh, blood donations. So um, the the situation there is so poor, um, and people who got evacuated they they can't get back to their homes until someone and like an art architect or someone who can understand it and buildings uh, just support the cracked buildings so they can go back home safely um so there's a lot of to, to be done right now uh, we are speaking about uh, hundreds of buildings got, got collapsed can you imagine where those people are going next if no, the government else, will rebuild their homes do, yeah. do we have enough infrastructure? Yeah, home's already damaged, right? And then everyone concerned about what's going to happen to the rest of them while the aftershocks are still going. Leila, I wish you and your family strength. And uh, as always, uh, thanks for sharing. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
Lila Hadir is a producer here with CKNW in Vancouver, the chorus affiliate in Vancouver. She is from Aleppo originally, came here to study. Uh, she still has family there. And of course, a very difficult night for anybody who has family in that zone right around the epicenter of that quake. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Chorus is uh, supporting uh, a group uh, of Canadian ag agencies called the Humanitarian Coalition in their appeal to help victims of this quake, including uh, folks in Aleppo, if you can. It is a group of 12 leading Canadian ag agencies, names you know, CARE, Oxfam, Save the Children and others. You can find more details on their website, www.humanitariancoalition.com. Ca. There's now a homepage set up that features details about how you can help uh, with their efforts in Turkey and Syria with quake recovery, quake relief, quake rescue right now. Again, humanitariancoalition.ca. I've heard of a library of things. I've just never been in one, at least not that I remember of. Remember. So you probably know what they are, right? It makes sense to... Um, to guess, perhaps. It's a library not full of books, but full of stuff. Stuff that you can borrow, just like there were library books, as long as you bring it back. You get a card, you go and pick it up. And it just seemed like a really good idea these days, given the high cost of absolutely everything that we've been witnessing of late. That if you needed, for instance, to see whether you wanted a uh, bread maker, or something along those lines, you know those appliances that you think you might use, but don't know how much you'll use them for, that there would be a place where you could go pick one up, uh, borrow it for a while, use it, bring it back. And of course, that is the whole idea behind libraries and things. They exist in Europe. There's a big one in London. There's one in Vancouver, I know. I'm not sure if there is one in Victoria or not where I am. Um, but, you know, it's a good idea. It's also not only is it a way to allow people to save some money, it also cuts down on waste. You know, more people get to share stuff. It's a, an idea of sort of of um, formalizing the whole notion of that old knocking on your neighbor's door and asking to borrow a cup of milk kind of thing, right? You can't get milk at the Library of Things, obviously. Uh, this one, though, is in Saskatoon. They've been around since 2017, but, of course, had to uh, shutter things during the height of the pandemic. They're back now, though, and doing good business, and I wanted to find out more about what they're all about. So joining me now to help us with that is Meg Dorward. She's coordinator of the Library of Things in Saskatoon. Thanks for your time. Hi. So this is a really, I mean, this is a neat idea, especially considering I think everyone out there is looking for solutions to the high cost of everything, right? And uh, sometimes you don't need, you don't need something forever and ever, but you do need it now or you need it for a bit. How did you come across this idea? Yeah, the, we're actually in a store. We're in the basement of a store and it was the owners of the store that had the idea for the the project. And so I came on board as a volunteer at the time and uh, and kind of helped them set it up. So when you, what was your the objective when you first set up? Like, what kind of items did you think you were going to have to stock? Who did you think you were going to see? Yeah, I mean, we were pretty much focusing on what other people had requested or what people kind of thought they might want and basically items that you only use a couple times a year or potentially things that you might want to test out before you purchase it uh, like a bread maker or something we've had some people come in and they're like i don't know if i actually want a bread maker but i want to try it out before i spend the money to actually purchase one uh, so kind of a combination of those two things of things that you don't use frequently and things that you might want to test out before you purchase so how long have you been opened and what's the reaction been like We've been around since 2017 and we've kind of just been like growing organically. We don't really have a budget. We're all volunteers. And so it's kind of been gradually growing that way. Um, obviously with the pandemic, we had to shut down for quite a bit of time. And so that kind of slowed our momentum, but now we're starting to build up again. Um, and that's really exciting. 
I would imagine there's a lot of demand now. I mean, the price of everything's so high that if you can, you know, if you can test some test drive something first before you actually go and spend the money, it's it's probably as popular as ever, I would think. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people you purchase something and you think you you want it, and then a couple of weeks later you're like, oh, I just wasted a bunch of money on this thing that I don't even enjoy using. <laughs> <laughs> so what 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 is uh, how does it work? I mean, you just come in like a li- like a library. You just come in and sign up, and do you have to? Yeah, how how, do you, how does it work when it comes to wanting to take things out of your library of things? Yeah, so it works very similarly to a library. You set up an account um, and then you can borrow things. So we have a website as well. So active members can reserve items from home as well to have it ready uh, for when they show up. And we have a very flexible kind of time frame of when how long people can borrow things because we do have things like beer and wine making kits, which obviously you need for quite a bit of time. Uh, and you could also be working on a project for quite a while and need the tools for a little longer. Um, and so we're pretty flexible on how long people can borrow things. It just depends if someone has reserved it after them, but we do welcome pretty much every renewal uh, as long as someone's not requesting it after them. And there's, is there a cost? We offer it completely for free, but we do have like a $30 per year suggested membership and obviously accept donations as much as we can, but we do want to make it completely accessible to anyone. And so we do offer it for a, a free membership as well. Because I imagine that you know, books are relatively relatively easy to maintain, but uh, a bread maker isn't. So you, you will need to you will need some funds there to make sure everything's in working order, right? Exactly. Yeah, there are some operational costs as well as just the the cost of repairing and maintaining some of the some of the items that we have. Yeah. So what what has proven um, what is proving popular these days at the Library of Things? Our most popular items are always around fall. We get people borrowing like the food dehydrator and the juicers and kind of using those for all of the stuff that they've grown in their garden. And those are always our most popular items. Uh, Throughout the year, the popular items kind of change. Uh, We have like party decorations and things for hosting events that people will will borrow platters or like coffee makers or like juice like things to put juice in and so those are kind of our most popular ones like we always thought that tools were going to be our most popular items and they they aren't our most popular we have lots of tools um, but they haven't been our most popular and i think it's because a lot of people already have a lot of tools themselves and so hopefully over time people can learn that they don't need to buy these items uh, and then maybe they'll become more popular in the future yeah, they're pretty indestructible too, right? So once you get them, it's not like other sort of moving parts things that break. Uh, tools tend to be pretty solid. Exactly. Yeah. What of the? Uh, do you get all the stuff through? Is it donated to you? How do you? How do you lay your hands on the things you need? Yeah, everything that we have in our library has been donated to us. We're very lucky that way. Um, if there is something that someone's looking for that we add to our wish list, sometimes we will post on social media seeing if anyone has it and wants to donate it. We also will sometimes post on social media if someone's looking for something and just like connect to people in the city to help them borrow it, things from each other. Kind of any any way that we can support uh, people in Saskatoon to to borrow things and share things amongst themselves, we're, we're happy to do. How do you curate to make sure you don't have too much? You know, you don't get that so-called, I suppose the library equivalent would be the 200 copies of Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Like, how do you how do you manage to avoid having too much of something you don't need and make sure you have the things that people really want? Yeah, we kind of analyze the data of what items are borrowed and what isn't to try and see what isn't isn't popular. But we do also know that we haven't 
been that great at promoting ourselves. So we do also know that there are some items in our library that we know would be popular if the right people knew about them. So we haven't been too concerned about getting rid of things in our inventory because we have luckily had space to to put everything in, even though we do have a pretty small space right now. Um, but that is something that we kind of uh, look at each year of just like what, what items aren't being borrowed. And if you think that maybe it would be borrowed in the f- future, and if it wouldn't, then we can donate, recycle or, or sell it. So tools aren't uh, are surprisingly not as popular as you thought. Is there anything that's more popular than you could ever imagine? I don't think so. I think things have been pretty predictable other than that because I think we we've done a good job of basically just bringing in what people have requested. Obviously we've had donations before people were requesting items. A lot of the items that that are borrowed, it was it was kind of expected that those those would get borrowed. Any good stories? I mean, people must tell you when they bring things back what kind of experience they have with them, right? So I imagine in some circumstances, you'd be a real lifesaver. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite days was someone came in with like literally the manual to mount their TV on the wall. And they were like, these are the tools I need. And so we gave them all of the tools they need. They went home, mounted their TV and came back and just brought them back the same day. And I was like, wow, that's literally exactly what we're here for. Like, I don't think this person's going to need all those tools again for quite a while. And so they don't actually have to purchase them and store them in their home. Yeah, that's that's a perfect example, right? Because that's exactly the kind of thing that you find yourself wanting to do without the proper tools to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was another time that we had a couple come in and I was asking them like what, what they needed. And they said they were just having a look around because they just bought a house and they were looking for all of the things that they didn't have to buy. And I was <laughs> like, wow, that's exactly what we're here for. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Because there's more to this than just being able to get your hands on stuff. You do have, there is a philosophy behind this idea of sharing and sort of borrowing instead of buying and tossing out. Absolutely. Yeah. We want to kind of build this culture of thinking of sharing, uh, even if someone doesn't use our service specifically, but if just knowing that the Library of Things exists sparks the idea to ask their friend or their neighbor if they can borrow something, we consider that a win as well. It is. I mean, the, the issue has always been, of course, borrowing things, especially amongst neighbors and so on, can be fraught. You know, it can, it can lead to bad things sometimes. How do you crack down on people who, uh, I mean, I don't know how many people abuse your generosity, but has it been, is it fairly, are people fairly good um, patrons, so to speak? Yeah, we've been lucky. Everything's gone quite well. Um, we as Because we have received pretty much everything by donation, we are lucky that if we do, if something does go missing, it's not the end of the world. It's not like we saved up and did a fundraiser to purchase something and then we lost it. And we are kind of just relying on the community that they are going to bring things back. And if something goes missing, that the community will again come together and help us get that item again. Um, and we're trying to like limit barriers. So that's why we, we try not to have too many barriers so that pretty much anyone can use the service and then hoping that the community kind of comes together to make sure that this can last for a really long time. So so Meg, where would you like to go from here? I know you, you, you were explaining you have a pretty small space, but uh, would you like to see this grow and expand in other parts of the city, the province? Absolutely. We do want to have a bigger space so that we can organize things a little bit better. It's, we have like over 700 items crammed into this very small space. So it would be nice to have a bit more of a browsable space for people to come check out. Um, it would also be cool in the future if there were multiple locations to make it more accessible for people to pick up and drop things off. It would be amazing if like every like condo building or neighborhood had something similar to this. Like not every house needs a lawnmower, right? You're not using it every single day. If you could just share these items with more people around the city, then we might not have to spend as much money. Yeah. And also it teaches a certain responsibility because I guess when you're, when you're caring for something that isn't yours, hopefully you're caring for it even better than you would if it was yours. That isn't always the case, but, uh, but exactly. it seems in your case so far, it's been okay. 
Yeah, it has. Yeah, everyone's pretty pretty happy with with the program and and wants to keep it going and and uh, use our our items well. Now I know these exist elsewhere. Um, have you had sort of a, a look to see what other you know other similar initiatives are doing in other parts of the country? Yeah. So when we started, we did look into what all the other ones kind of around the world or in the country were. And so we got a lot of inspiration from them. It definitely isn't a completely unique idea that we kind of created on our own. Um, and so we did get quite a bit of advice from a couple other ones. The the one in Toronto, we communicated with quite a bit uh, to, to get advice and figure out how to kind of organize our systems and everything. And so there have also been people that reach out to us that are thinking of starting their own. And so we have conversations with people about that. And so it's really cool to be part of a community that it's not really competitive. I mean, we're all in different cities anyway, but everyone just wants to kind of help each other build these these libraries around the world. Yeah, I, I don't even know the history of them. I know they've popped up of late because we're seeing more stories about them, but I don't even know what the history of library of things are. Yeah, I don't know the exact history, but I'm pretty sure it started somewhere in Europe. I think it was Netherlands or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a while since I looked up the history of the library of things, but yeah, they're they're all over the world. There's there's quite a bit of a few big ones. There the, there's one in London, and they've got quite a few locations. They just did a big uh, fundraiser to be able to expand to multiple different locations around London and have like it's quite quite advanced. And and so it's pretty cool to see what's possible out there, so that we can kind of like dream big and see what we can do in the future, but also know that like we started so small and such a grassroots thing that it's it's possible at any scale well Meg, uh thank you so much for telling us all about it what a what an interesting and uh and worthwhile initiative as we like to say it's great thanks so much but concerns about the healthcare system are certainly contributing to a broader malaise at least according to a new leger poll you can't take every poll you see at face value, but this one seemed pretty convincing. Um, The new poll out over the weekend paints a pretty bleak picture of how we're looking at our country these days. Uh, This was headline uh, front page news on the National Post. Uh, Of course, it does coincide with a certain messaging that's out there from one political party these days, but it found that 67% of Canadians agree with the statement made by a Canadian politician Uh, We'll get to that in a second. Who stated that it feels like everything is broken in this country right now? Of course, those were the words of conservative leader Pierre Polyev uh, back in November. It grabbed a lot of headlines. He's been repeating it ever since. Um, He did so again when uh, Parliament returned. Now, if this was meant to create a divide between uh, the sunny ways of the prime minister and the bleak days of the current leader of the opposition, it worked. Uh, Trudeau took Polyev to tax, saying that where we draw the line, he says Canada's not broken. Uh, here's Polyev, though, t- touching on that subject again in late January. Seriously, look around you. Crime is raging out of control in our streets. Our people are desperate that they'll have to lose their homes because of rising inflation and interest rates the government promised would never happen. People are losing loved ones at record rates to violent crime and drug overdoses. And families who've been locked down for two years because of COVID are now locked down at airports when they try to get away for a small vacation. Now, if you look at the statistics on violent crime, you might be uh, surprised to find that it actually isn't up. I mean, but there have been a lot of high-profile incidents of late, so people do feel, you get the sense, people feel less insecure, or less secure, rather, 
about walking around in the downtown cores of certain cities. Um, that poll also, the Leger poll, showed that 50% of Canadians are angry with the way Canada is being managed today. Uh, that's evenly divided between men and women across all age groups, highest in the West, especially Alberta, but not below 40% everywhere. Um, healthcare was a big deal. Inflation is a huge deal. Inflation and interest rates, affordability, 68% concerned about that. So lots of things to chew on in there about the current political climate and where are we headed over the next little while. Well, someone who pays close attention to this uh, in a long game kind of way is Richard Johnston. He's a professor emeritus in the Department of Political Science at the University of British Columbia and author of the Canadian Party System, an analytic history. Uh, thank you so much for your time on this one. Hi there. So this is hardly new. Uh, you know, it's uh, the country's broken and it's all the government's fault is a pretty age-old strategy when it comes to campaigning. Uh, what do you make of the tone here, though? Because it does feel as if it's more prevalent than it usually is in terms of uh, how that message is landing. Well, it's pretty striking how high the numbers are, although one should really be careful about absolute numbers in any poll. But mm-hmm. it is striking, and it's it's no less striking, and this may be more important, is that the numbers don't vary much across demographic groups, regions, or whatever. I mean, there's modest ones. By the way, there's much bigger differences on the angry question than on the broken question. might want to True. come back to that. But the thing about broken is that it's, it's a retrospective judgment on government performance, which in some sense is silent on the policy direction, although, of course, Polyever has a number of specific policy critiques. But in some sense, this is, a, this is a, a rhetorical posture, let's say, that can pull in people from a wide variety of stripes, which is what the Conservative Party needs to do if we're speaking about the electoral politics of it. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch so far since uh, right through his leadership campaign up to now, uh, the uh, the focus on a few single points that seem they seem to be able to drive home again and again. It's been a very disciplined uh, and focused uh, yeah. message so far from the opposition. I think that's, you know, you wrote about this uh, not, not that long ago, but, you know, this was something that they were lacking under Aaron O'Toole. Yes, and, and actually... Um, They've been they've been lacking since uh, Harper. I mean, the sheer struggle to say anything. I would say uh, O'Toole confused the message by running to the right in his leadership campaign and then reversing course to what I think hindsight suggests was his true position, which is considerable moderation. For Polyev, it has been a consistent message. It is it is a question that is as strong on tone as it is on content, and it, it is a tone of anger. Yeah, we, we, you mentioned that earlier because I was looking at those anger numbers right before you came on, and it was interesting to see how consistent the anger numbers were. Because normally we use, you know, there's a way of kind of writing it off as a certain group of people who don't like Trudeau uh, from a certain part of the country where they don't like Trudeau uh, more than other parts of the country. Uh, but this was actually quite unified. I mean, it was relatively high uh, in the East. Uh, it was pretty much evenly divided between men and women. Um, it was an interesting outcome, the angry one that you pointed out earlier, not the broken one. Well, except that uh, it's true. They're not large by historic standards, but they're, they're actually more visible in critical ways than, than with the broken. Although, actually, the critical thing in the anger, I'm actually looking at the Leger <laughs> slideshow <laughs> right now. The, so was the I. Thing that, the thing that <laughs> yeah. stands out in the anger actually is Alberta. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is, it is in the order of 
10 plus percentage points off on most of the key, as many as 14 in some cases, on the key metrics. So there's still a strong kind of anger with the liberal government component in in there. But you're right, there's some sense in which the, the baseline is, uh, is, is quite high, so that even, even regions where the liberals are historically strong, uh, it ain't great for them to be, yeah. to, 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 to be uh, net angry. You've written about this uh, in the past, too, about just how Canada's party system shifts around, the, the sand shift, right? Um, and, and clearly the liberals have occupied that sort of comfy spot in the middle for quite a while, then the agreement they have with the NDP made that even more cozy. Um, and they kind of managed to push the Conservatives off into the right a little bit and leave them there. Uh, do you see that change? Is something changing beneath our feet right now as we're watching this? I, I feel like there's a bit of well, a shift going on. No, that's okay. Um, I think it comes down to how much staying power the um, – the weakness of the differences on, on anger will be. It'll be interesting to see three years from now, or rather, I guess you're really talking two and a half years from now, um, this kind of across-the-board sentiment will persist. I'm, I'm skeptical that it will. I mean, we, we're clearly in a tough patch right now. There's no getting around that. All the various things that uh, Mr. Polyev talked about, but some of them are slowly resolving themselves, right? The the and and of course many of them are hardly peculiar to Canada. I mean, you could, we could be having this conversation in, in, on a Seattle talk show, for that matter. Uh, yeah. You know, Americans are absolutely convinced to the tune of about seventy percent that the country is in recession. It's not. It's actually the most robust job market in more than half a century. I mean, it's quite striking. Inflation numbers do seem to be coming down. It's possible that further fallout from Ukraine and impact on the international energy market will send them back up. But we seem to be in a position where once we absorb the big inflationary surge of about a year ago, the year-over-year numbers are going to actually go down quite dramatically at a higher price level than two years ago, but still. So some of these things may just work their way through the system. It is A lot of what's going on here is, is the figurative uh, rat being swallowed by the snake. You know, you see it move along the snake and eventually it disappears as it's, as it's absorbed. So there's some, of, there's some un, unfolding of a, a, a wide range of difficulties in the immediate aftermath of COVID amplified by the war in Ukraine. So, you know, two years from now, who knows how it will look. And if it looks better, then the the kind of retrospective across the board stuff may matter less. Because underneath the party system, or in the electorate underneath the party system, the country is actually quite divided. It, and, it, and it isn't just that the liberals hug the center and have marginalized the conservatives. The conservative has the conservative party has moved itself. This is this is the unfolding of organizational changes that really go back to the 1960s and the the revival of real constituency politics in the conservative party that before John Diefenbaker was just moribund. It really was a shell. And and as the conservative party reinvigorated itself the the intensity of constituency politics increased and that began to pull the party to the right meanwhile the liberals are now 
you know, they, they're now kind of indistinguishable on most policy questions from the NDP, except mm-hmm. on things that go to the kind of the, the, the trades union core of, of the old NDP. But, but there is a sense in which they are kind of fungible as policy operations now. It's, and, it certainly gap, feels it. You know, yeah. So the gap, the gap in elections, the, the choice that Canadians face is actually quite wide by historic standards. Yeah, you've often talked about the empty middle, and it feels like maybe we've started has, to see it. That's right. It has been emptying. The, the picture in my book, for which I, I thank you for the reference, uh, <laughs> that book is really kind of about the 20th century. And the 21st century party system is not the same as the 20th century party system. There's many legacies, of course, but they're really not the same. Uh, Professor Johnston, when you look at the at what this could mean politically, I mean, obviously, a lot can change between now and the next federal election, whenever that may be. Uh, but as you were mentioning earlier, if there's not much of a middle there anymore, that kind of changes the equation a bit because um, they're not really fighting for the same piece of the pie anymore, in some senses, or, or the liberals need to don't need to fight as hard, perhaps, as they would have back in the '80s when it was much more sort of two centrist parties going after each other. That's right. And, and of course, when we talk about polarization, it's a two-way street. So the prime minister is wedging at least as much as Pierre Polyevre is, just different side of the of the pie. Uh, he's trying to underscore that the politics of Pierre Polyevre and the Conservatives are unacceptable in polite circles, so to speak. Uh, yeah. That he's, you know, so so this is the if you if you think of elections as sending two kinds of messages, right? One is a positional message. Do you want to move the policy of policies of the country to the left or do you want to move them to the right? And that that positional kind of logic makes it hard to cross the gap. The other thing is uh, not, not positional, but performance, retrospective judgments on how the government has managed the files. Uh, and I think that Poliev has concluded that although anger seems to work, that there is a, there is a kind of – there, there's more kind of sentiment that is resentful of elites now, say, than there was four years ago. And he's hoping that he can stir that up without getting too much into policy content. But in general, the, the messages that he's selling right now, of course, with an angry tone, are messages about failure to perform – failure to get it done, that sort of thing. Yeah, which is an, another... Con- It'll be interesting to see Pierre Polyev, um, you know, try to peddle this message only because he's been a politician since he was, I don't know, in his early 20s. He's never really had a, a real job. never had a real jo- right. job, yeah. which is yeah. interesting if, when he talks about gatekeepers. You think, wait a second, you were a politician when I was in Ottawa, and that was a long time ago. <laughs> so, yes. Um, it's... Um, what what interests me though about his message is that it seems to be landing at least according to the polls and and they're never in, entirely uh right but it seems to be landing well with a younger um cross section of voters which is interesting because i think a lot of people when they studied this and this sort of the rise of millennials and gen z thought okay well that they're going to vote they're going to be progressive and they're going to vote for more left of center parties um than their predecessors and yet it seems like the more populist message is really landing in some sense is at least with some portion of, of a younger electorate it does i mean we we want to be careful with this because it's also the case that underneath 
younger Canadians are accustomed to a quite a different picture of the country from older Canadians. Right? They have grown up, at least urban ones have, in a very diverse uh, social context, and, and they're living in the diversity. Of course, many of them are from uh, backgrounds that are not the kind of historic Anglo-Celtic backgrounds of places like Vancouver. So there, that, that's still there. But I think that, the it, at least in the short run, younger voters in general are less moored politically than older ones. And that's always been true. So if there's a if there's a wind blowing, and it would seem that there is a wind blowing right now, they can be more susceptible to it, even if it seems to be blowing in a direction that's not consistent with these long-term trends. Uh, and it's also the case that younger voters, in some ways, have more right to complain than older voters about how things are working. But part of the reason why they have that right to complain is that they're coming to adulthood in a social structure that's not delivering intergenerational goods the way it used to. You know, my, my children are unlikely ever to have the have the money to own a detached home, or only when I die will they have the money to. Because of course, quite without any activity on my part, I happen to be sitting on a unproductive piece of real estate that is worth an obscene amount of money. I could never have bought this thing. So to the extent that younger voters, especially in the cities, especially in the growth parts of, of the country, can't realistically expect to have single detached home ownership. As it is, they're looking at uh, four people sharing a one-bedroom apartment to, to, to get a rental in Vancouver, or they're looking at riding the subway or the train for an inordinate amount of time to get to work. So there's a lot of ways in which they're facing an uncertain world. It won't necessarily be a poor world, but it will be a harder world to navigate and one in which mistakes might be more costly than was the case for people like me and, I guess, you. Yeah, yeah, and when one looks at it, it certainly feels like that, if things stay this way, that'll certainly be uh, front and center in the next election. Uh, Richard Johnston, thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, if you look at recent polling, uh, you'll know that healthcare, the healthcare system, is one of the big concerns amongst Canadians these days. It's right up there near the top of things that we're all worried about. So all eyes will be on Ottawa tomorrow. The Prime Minister is hosting provincial and territorial leaders for a long-awaited, long-awaited sit-down meeting about healthcare funding in this country. Now, if you believe all the reporting, and it's consistent enough that it seems like this is exactly what's going to happen, um, the Prime Minister will offer a decade-long plan to the provinces and the territories that provides a, quote, significant increase to the Canada health transfer. That's the money that the federal government transfers to the provinces to spend on health care, as well as additional money if they agree to one-on-one -on -one deals targeting specific problem areas in the health care. They're also going to want to see some data to make sure that the money is being spent the way they want it to. Um, as Global News was reporting earlier as well, uh, this will be money that has to be put into the public system. So they're not going to support, we believe, uh, initiatives like what we've just seen in Ontario under the uh, Ford government, where they're essentially allowing uh, the private sector to provide some of this publicly uh, delivered health care. You know, you don't have to pay for it, but uh, it's paid for by your health care system, but it's being delivered privately. That would be off the table. Um, at a time when, of course, people are starting to look for flexibility in the healthcare system. 
All along, and this has been a real point of contention, the premiers have wanted Ottawa to fund 35% of what they budget for health care instead of what they say is just 22% that Ottawa pays now. That's a number that's decreased over the years, of course. Um, this year, that means $26 billion more in transfers. Now, today, Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson was asked about Exactly, she expects for tomorrow. She is currently the chair of the Premier's group, known as the Council of the Federation. And she says that the fact that Premiers haven't seen any details yet, other than what they're seeing in the newspapers or on TV, is frustrating. Until we actually sit down and, and have and be able to see that proposal tomorrow, it's very difficult to make a comment on, on something that we haven't seen. That is Manitoba's Premier Heather Stephenson. Now, the federal proposal will see new money flow apparently as soon as the next budget. That's coming soon. And healthcare funding, of course, always a contentious topic between the provinces and the federal government. Uh, the pandemic's effects have strained the system already. Uh, so it has certainly accelerated the need to have the kind of conversation we're going to see uh, the Premier and the Prime Minister, uh, Premiers and the Prime Minister have tomorrow. Don't expect anything miraculous, though. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say today. This is going to be work that we're going to continue doing uh, over the coming uh, coming weeks as we recognize that different provinces uh, have different needs and different priorities, and that flexibility is an important part of our system. And that is the Prime Minister today. Dr. Catherine Smart is a Yukon-based pediatrician. She's former head of the Canadian Medical Association. She's been on the show before. Uh, Dr. Smart, thank you. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So this is, I mean, you tweeted about this today. This is crunch time. It feels like it's crunch time. There's not that much patience out there, I don't think, in the healthcare system amongst those who work in it. And Canadians in general are looking and thinking, we want to see some progress here. Uh, what will you be looking for tomorrow? Oh, I totally agree with you. I think what we want to see tomorrow is real commitment uh, to moving forward with an actual plan about how we get the healthcare system back on track. You know, no question, things are at, at an all-time low. We've been talking about the healthcare system collapsing for over six months now. So I think what we want to see tomorrow is, is a commitment on the things that can get us going back in that di right direction. So certainly a starting point is more investment in health. We know that's critical. But where that money goes really matters. And I think we need to be looking at what, what are the pressure points right now. And it's pretty clear what they are. You know, primary care is a huge issue between five and six million Canadians with no access there. So we need to see investments in primary care, scaling of team-based integrated collaborative care so that all Canadians can have a medical home. That's critical. We've got growing wait lists for surgery. We need investments there so that Canadians can get these important operations and get back to the, living their lives, get their pain addressed, their mobility function addressed. That's really key. Um, we need to be able to scale things like virtual care. So strategies like pan-Canadian licensure, which we've been talking a lot about at the CMA, is going to give us that workforce mobility so that we can get doctors where they need to be, both in real life and virtually, which I think can really address some of the wait times and backlogs that we've been seeing. We'd like to see something around that mental wellness of healthcare professionals themselves. You know, burnout's at an all-time high. We need to make sure that we're supporting people in the workplace and getting them where they need to be so they can deliver patients the care they deserve. And underpinning all these things we've been talking about is that commitment to data really using data so that we can see what's happening across our country so we can drive accountability and outcomes in our system and use that data so that we can continue to to develop the system as we move forward and make sure it's doing what we think it should be doing for listeners and it's often difficult you know to to understand exactly how the, how this all works because everything you've mentioned are things i think have been 
blatantly obvious for for quite a while, right, to fix this stuff. And yet here we are. Uh, it's obviously not money and money alone that, that solves this. What has been, do you think, the issue? And I know it changes from province to province, but where are the sticking points right now? Why isn't this being done quicker? How did we get here, in other words? No, I think that's such a great question because I think you're absolutely right. I mean, nothing I'm saying is is really a new idea. Perhaps maybe the pan-Canadian licensure is something that's been more mm-hmm. recent, but all the other things have absolutely been talked about for a long time, if not, you know, more than a decade. Uh, so I think that is the real question is, is why are we stuck here? And I, I think there's, you know, several answers. I think one of the biggest challenges we have is, is the model of federalism, although it has lots of strengths, you know, the challenges, it sometimes means we're not all moving in the same direction. And I think it makes something like healthcare sometimes a bit of a political hot potato, right? Who really wants to take responsibility for where the healthcare system is? You know, obviously it didn't get here overnight. It's not the fault or the, the result of one political party or, or one decision. Uh, but I think people are often afraid to really own it because it is a big problem. So that often leads to sort of the what we've been hearing now, right? The provinces pointing the finger at the federal government, the federal government pointing the fingers at the provinces, and it's a very easy thing to not take responsibility for. So I think that's what's landed us here. You know, even the fact it's taken two years to get to this point to have the conversation that's happening tomorrow, I think is is quite concerning. But what I'm hoping is is now it's clearly become a huge priority for Canadians. No polling's telling us it's the number one concern of Canadians. So I hope that politicians are heeding that. I think our, our healthcare system's sort of been in slow decline, but now it's really gone over the edge of a cliff. So hopefully now we're going to see that political will uh, to, to really get serious about these conversations and to think about what needs to happen next. Again, we've we've laid out a plan. There's many stakeholders at the table that are ready to do the work. I think we have the support of the public. Um, and now we just need our politicians to really get willing to do the work. It's going to take courage. These aren't solutions that are going to happen in a political cycle. They're going to happen over a decade or more. Um, but I think what's clear is if we don't do something about this, the healthcare system will uh, continue to decline um, and Canadians will pay with their wellness and their lives. And that's where we are today. What don't you want to see uh, come out of this? I mean, I know when they when the health ministers met back in Vancouver in the fall, it all ended somewhat acrimoniously. I imagine that's what you don't want. <laughs> that would be obviously what you don't want to see. But what, what don't you want to see in the next few, in, in tomorrow? Yeah, definitely. What I definitely don't want to see is, oh, we'll talk more later or we couldn't agree about anything or, you know, again, that kind of retreating into the silos of the finger pointing. Um, And I don't think that's going to happen. You know, I I am optimistic. I think there's been a lot of work happening in the background. Um, I think the tone that we're hearing uh, as different politicians, you know, are speaking to the media. I think there's a sense that there there has been some movement forward uh, in terms of a plan. Uh, so that's encouraging to me. So I think, you know, really what I don't want to hear is is more pressing pause. We really need to move full steam ahead. We need to give this the attention it deserves. And, and the, the you know, we really just can't state the urgency of, of what needs to be done. And, and you know, this is obviously just going to be a starting point. There's a lot of, of work that needs to be done to really see these changes in the system. Uh, so this is the beginning, but it, it really just can't start soon enough. What are you hearing uh just from you know, I know you're you're you know you're you're back to to your to your regular gig as well. But what are you hearing? Just from what what's the mood like amongst amongst healthcare professionals these days? Is there any sense of optimism that this might actually turn around in the near future? I think you know healthcare professionals across the board are. are incredibly stressed. You know they've been working uh, so hard for so long, and 
you know, as the pressures from COVID have perhaps changed a bit in the hospital, unfortunately, they've been replaced by other emergencies and other crises. And I think people just feel like they're moving from one disaster to the next. And then, of course, on top of that is is just this huge loss of people from the health workforce. That means the people left behind are, are working in even more challenging positions um, and situations. So I, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of optimism right now now in healthcare, but but what there is 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 a deep commitment to wanting to do the job and wanting to serve Canadians, and I think that's why you're seeing so many people in healthcare speak out, uh, whether it's in the you know traditional media or on social media, trying to draw attention to this, advocating for change, really wanting to see our politicians step up and support us because people are in these jobs because they deeply care about serving the public and they want to see a system that works. They want to be part of a modernization of a healthcare system that allows them to thrive allows them to, to give their patients the, the quality of care they think they deserve. So I have no doubt that healthcare professionals are, are ready to dig in and contribute. Um, but I, I think they need some hope too. And, and I hope tomorrow that, that these, hopefully these commitments are signaling to healthcare professionals that the politicians have our back and people can start to feel more hopeful and more optimistic for the future of our system. And we've come out at the other end with people feeling much less confident uh, in the ability of the healthcare system to deliver the services they may need when they need them. What's happened to healthcare is it's moved from being a long-term issue to being something that's much more immediate. Well, it just shows how desperate they are to get good healthcare services in a timely way. Carol Bricker, their CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, referring to a poll that they just did for Global News on uh, Canadians' attitudes towards the healthcare system. 85% of us believe drastic changes are needed. 59% support the private delivery of publicly funded services. Uh, 60% are in favor of private healthcare for those who can afford it, uh, which are numbers that uh, Daryl Bricker was saying he hadn't heard before, seen before, of late at least, in that kind of sentiment. Dr. Catherine Smart is with us. She's former head of the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, what do you make of that, I mean, we saw the the um, initiative from Ontario a few weeks back, where they were going to get more private delivery of publicly funded healthcare. Uh, do you sense that that people's attitudes towards this are changing? Because we've really been we've really held steadfast to this for so long. Well, I think, you know, just what you were talking about there in the polling numbers is I think Canadians really realize just how desperate things are in the healthcare system, and, and they're really deeply concerned about it. And, and I think that's coming through loud and clear. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about healthcare delivery, it, it's challenging in this country, because often it's not clear exactly what people are talking about. So we already have a lot of publicly funded, privately delivered healthcare. In fact, the, in fact, the vast majority of physicians' offices are exactly that. They are mm -hmm. publicly funded by their billings to the government, and with that that earnings, they provide that infrastructure of healthcare. So that's that's a, a model that already happens here. I think what we need to to be clear about is: Are we talking? Are we shifting the conversation to a conversation about for-profit healthcare, which is a very different thing? So, you know, I, I think what we what we want to be committed to in the, in our system is is high-quality delivery of healthcare that's not for profit, and that can happen in different environments, much like a physician's office, and it can be very effective. But once you start talking about trying to to have for-profit healthcare delivery, you know, that's where things get murkier because that's when you start to then have dollars that are going to making profits for a corporation or a business owner versus providing high quality care for Canadians. And I think that's when we start to worry about things like equity, about differential access to care based on your ability to pay. And I, I think that's uh, a much riskier space for us to be in rather than really looking at how do we invest publicly 
funded dollars into a high quality healthcare system. And I would say there's a lot of work we can still do there to make sure that we can deliver on the promise of universal healthcare with that equity lens and make sure that it's available to Canadians. But we haven't done that work. So I, for one, am not ready yet to give up on the idea of, of a universally accessible healthcare system. I think it's really important, um, but it's going to mean that we have to do things differently than we've been doing them. I can only imagine there are companies out there that are looking at this, thinking this is a golden opportunity to to change things uh, because there's a frustration amongst the public and that, um, you know, some people benefit when things go wrong, as we've seen in other other parts of the world and other issues and other domains, right? Oh, absolutely. There's always people ready to to take advantage of a crisis, so to speak, or, or to look for profit. And that's understandable. But I think as a as a country, I, I think we see that healthcare is an equity issue. Um, it matters to us. It's part of our national identity. And it, it matters that the, the most vulnerable and marginalized amongst us have access to high quality care. And that is the promise of Medicare. And, and I think we need to really um, take that seriously. Well, Dr. Smart, as always, thank you so much. We'll be watching tomorrow. I'll be watching your Twitter feed tomorrow to see if you're impressed with what uh, with what gets put out there. I'll certainly let you know. Let's hope. <laughs>